Type 1. The reformer or the perfectionist. As a one myself, I prefer the term reformer, because perfectionist sounds like the word you use when asked to describe your greatest weakness in a job interview because it doesn't sound like that bad of a weakness. However, I, as a perfectionist, would never say that's my greatest weakness because A, it's a little too personal, and B, I know there's a better answer out there somewhere, some original, truly perfect response that will catch the interviewer off guard and make them appreciate the way I stood out from the other applicants. But hey, you know what, at the end of the day, as long as I responded with integrity and did the right thing, I'm satisfied no matter if I get the job or not. <sighs> okay, that, in an anecdotal nutshell, is type one. Reformers are all about doing things the right way for the right reasons. As a fellow one, Richard Rohr jokes that if there's a proper way to do anything, even if it's loading the dishwasher, ones will advocate, sometimes rather vocally, for the proper method. There's nothing that gets a one more riled up than injustice, and ones will make great personal sacrifices to war against immoral or unjust conditions in the world. However, Ones are self-critical thinkers, so we're always concerned with justifying our thoughts and actions to those around us. This can make us uncomfortable with our boiling cauldron of raw emotion tucked neatly beneath our surface. What can I say? We're passionate folks, but we'd rather appear measured and wise than emotional and undisciplined. Ones feel energized by having a mission and a purpose derived from a higher being of some kind, and that can be a boss, parent, or a divine being, but our superego is constantly in dialogue with our ideals. Childhood. As children, ones are typically raised by a, quote, disconnected, protective figure, end quote. They say it's usually the biological father that teaches ones they must become their own guide to establish our safe space with clear boundaries to ward off any potential danger. Personally, my upbringing with an abusive alcoholic father who insisted on straight A's and unquestioned adherence to his corrupt authority made me want to be perfect in a kind of subversive way. Because if I rebelled against his authority, yet performed with excellence in school, church, and sports, then he couldn't successfully label me as a bad kid if I questioned his authority. Because, hey, I was checking all of his own boxes. I guess my mindset was sort of, I'll pass your tests to show you how worthless your tests are. And if anyone has seen Law Abiding Citizen, it's basically just like that. Ironically, Richard Rohr says children with parents who are sixes, and my dad is a six, often become pastors to reform the structures they experienced growing up. So, there's me again in a nutshell. Anyway, strict childhood consequences for being wrong or bad prevent ones from taking the risk of stepping out of line unless we know full well we're in the right. This can lead us to villainize or wall ourselves off from outside opinions about our behaviors because realizing we may have done something actually bad can shake us to our very core. Overall, the lost childhood message of ones is that you are good. Basic characteristics. The desire to be good and have integrity is a one's core desire. Our basic fear is to be seen as bad, corrupt, evil, or defective. When our core desire is distorted by our fear, we can potentially deteriorate into hypercritical perfectionism, which sounds like nothing and no one is ever good enough, most of all myself. We can take out our critical self-loathing on others and manipulate them, especially in romantic relationships, by continually correcting their behavior. For me, 
This sounds like uh, turning a mere difference in preference or behavior into a moral absolute wrong. So like yawning during an intimate conversation feels utterly disrespectful rather than a simple expression of fatigue after a long day. The key passion of a one drawn from the seven deadly sins originally is anger, which is typically experienced as bitterness caused by one's continually repressing anger in order to appear righteous, dignified, and unaffected. Let's move on to how ones with varying wings will look. A one with a nine wing is known as the idealist. Famous idealists are Plato, Gandhi, Sandra Day O'Connor, Martha Stewart, Al Gore, and Noam Chomsky. Idealists are highly discerning and wise and slightly more philosophical than the other wing with introverted and reclusive tendencies. They are emotionally reserved but generous and find beauty in nature and animals as they are truly innocent creations. They're less likely to get their hands dirty with the daily work necessary to bring about the change they would like to see in the world, and they prefer to live in a world of ideals as they advocate for the work of others to bring about their desired changes. When less healthy, they can become elitists and separate themselves from the masses in an ivory tower or cabin in the wilderness. A one with a two-wing is known as an advocate. Famous advocates are Hillary Clinton, Celine Dion, Ralph Nader, Pope John Paul II, and Emma Thompson. Advocates combine their ideals with deep empathy for others and are willing to get into the trenches with others to bring about the changes they want. They're more active and outgoing than the other subtype, although they're comfortable being alone to recharge. Advocates are energized by being with others, and when unhealthy, they can become tirelessly critical and vocal about their frustrations with others. Quick side note, the Enneagram Institute also lists both Tina Fey and Osama bin Laden as ones. So uh, we ones can really go into just about any career, be it international terrorism or improv comedy. Uh, and there's a bombing joke in there somewhere, but I don't really have the heart to make it. Anyway, the main difference between the idealist and the advocate is essentially in how they execute their desire to change the world. The idealist is a bit more philosophic and interested in contemplating the best ways to affect long-term change, while the advocate might be seen going door-to-door -door with a more individualistic, grassroots approach. In their relationship with others, idealists may come off a bit more elitist as they've discovered certain truths others have not and do not adhere to, while advocates will just be frustrated or pissed off with people who don't take action on what they know to be true. Instincts, or variants. Ones with an emphasis on the self-preservation instinct present as highly focused on their physical and material well-being, basically like sixes. They can be clean freaks who have an organized cupboard full of supplements and vitamins, but who often overcompensate for the late-night burger they had the night before. Self-preservation ones feel we must earn or protect our comfort and reward ourselves with the opposite of what we focus on guilty as charged. Ones with an emphasis on the sexual instinct long for the perfect mate. They can be mistaken for fours in the way they idolize a romantic relationship. However, all their relationships are under a critical microscope. All friends and family must meet the highest standards and exemplify fidelity or else this intense love and commitment they experience will suddenly be ripped away. Ones with an emphasis on the social instinct are focused on expressing their core beliefs and values. Social ones who experience people with opposing beliefs or lifestyles take it personally. 
They take it as an affront to the lifestyle and beliefs they've spent a long time cultivating. Conversations with social ones can often feel more like a debate or sermon, depending on who they are. Social ones also seek to embody the most righteous life possible in order to change their community. Disintegration. When ones are stressed, they can mirror unhealthy fours and become moody, irrational, and make impulsive decisions to throw off their own self-imposed strict moral code. I can't tell you how many times I've had a bad week or two and I have wanted to get a sleeve of tattoos and move to Spain to fight bulls. Alas, I haven't yet. Integration. When ones are healthy, they mirror the characteristics of healthy sevens and become more joyful, open to new experiences, and engaging. I love curating special experiences, surprise dates, trips, uh, just about any type of new activity with my fiance on dates. I've done this since I've known her, and it's probably my favorite interactions we've had is when I'm in this space of searching for new things, and I tend to make friends with a lot of sevens and fours, ironically because we are so connected in what we want to do, both in health and in unhealth. Growth signals. A nagging pressure that feels like the need to fix everything and everyone around them should be a wake-up call for one struggling to find inner peace. This feeling actually leads to the systematic manipulation of those close to ones through constant critiques of everything loved ones are doing wrong. It's portrayed as fixing or helping, but it often creates codependent relationships. Owning the fact that a one is doing this taps into their deepest fear of being wrong and therefore being bad or defective. However, humble self-correction with the help of feedback from a trusted community or mentor is the most transformational experience for ones. I've had the same mentor for about six years now and he's become like the father I wished I had growing up because he is utterly a safe space who has no judgment rarely gives advice and just lets me reflect myself back to me in a way because I can tell him just about I could tell him anything not just about anything and it's just received with love rarely ever advice and I just see the way that I wish I were with people who are telling me their problems confessing things they've done wrong and he just embodies an utter sense of warmth and non-judgment. And that, to me, is exactly what I hope for all ones to experience. Practices that help development. Release your inner judge. It may seem impossible, but attempt to simply listen and let others be as they are when you experience them as unhealthy or broken. Trust that they have their own inner guide to lead them towards health and wholeness, and that by simply embodying peace and joy, they will be inspired to seek truth. Pay attention to the way you ride yourself. Take breaks before you're exhausted. Play when you have no excuse to and prioritize rest in a ritualistic way. You likely prioritize and schedule all sorts of work. Do the same thing with your free time and play. It's just as important. It may not make you seem good or disciplined or wise to spend money on that vacation or that trip or that like niche gym membership or whatever, but whatever it is that makes you stop and do something for your soul, that's what you got to do. Ask for help. Ask for help. Ask for help.
I say it three times because I know you're not going to do it (laughs) the first time. Even if you think you may be able to figure it out in a couple of hours, let someone help you. And don't take it as a judgment as your inability to figure it out. And then once they've helped you, even if they didn't really help you and they were just kind of there, show them tons of appreciation. Send them thank you texts, write them a thank you note, take them to dinner or drinks, whatever. You have a gift for seeing people. So see the best in people and tell them what you see. Don't keep it on the inside. You're way more likely to express your criticism of people. So you're going to have to overcorrect and express the beauty and the goodness you see in other people. Even if it's just a sliver and it may not feel completely genuine, you got to trust that that's the sweet spot of who you are. And it'll give you a lot more grace for when you are critical. Let people respond to your critiques without immediately shooting them down. Sit with their responses and disagreeable thoughts in order to assure them you're not just waiting to speak or preach at them. Learn to live with the broken or weak parts of you. There's only so much self-improvement you can do and some things will always be broken. Some things will never get better and they don't need to get better. This will no doubt make you upset or tense and this leads to the last and most important area of growth. Work on your anger. And I'm preaching to myself as I say this and I study anger more than any other emotional condition and I've done a whole voiceover on rage if you're interested in listening to it once it's on our episode with Alex called the female body of Christ and I think it has never been more relevant now in our culture of outrage ones must seek forgiveness humility and grace as they are the cure we need seek out the company of patient wise people going back to what I said about a mentor and although this may sound harsh We kind of have to run from people who constantly vent their anger. They can't help us manage our anger and they may ultimately stunt our growth. Your greatest gifts and the emergence of essence. The greatest gifts ones have to offer is their benevolent wisdom. You've got a much needed voice to share with the world, but don't let that judgmental ego get in the way of all the good you can do in the world. Finally, The wisdom of the Enneagram provides this invitation to abundance and prayer for ones to memorize. Remember to live for a higher purpose and that it is your true nature to be wise and discerning. When it comes to a final prayer or motto that I think ones should uh, internalize, it's been recommended by countless others and it's the semi-official prayer of AA and it's the serenity prayer. You've probably heard it before. I've got it engraved on a Zippo lighter I bought when I was a teenager before I really understood how much it was going to come to define my life. And it goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Amen.